Greetings, this is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will take a look at Acts chapter 24, verses 10 through 27. In our last session, Paul was confronted with the charges that had been brought against him. Ananias the high priest and some elders had traveled from Jerusalem in the hopes of reclaiming Paul in order to bring him back to Jerusalem, where they intended to put him to death. To strengthen that possibility, they had brought with them an attorney, Tertullus, who was most probably one of the best attorneys in the region. As these men knew that the charges that will be brought against Paul would be hard to prove. Furthermore, they would be presenting their case before Felix, who had a reputation of not being a just judge. Therefore, they had to be very careful how they approached this situation. As we previously studied, Tertullus had brought three charges against Paul. Of course, Tertullus began with greetings to Felix that were meant to flatter his ego. Just about all that he said was pretty much the exact opposite of the truth, but the goal was to gain good favor with the judge over these proceedings. Then Tertullus presented his charges one by one. The first one was a personal charge. He began to by accusing Paul of being a plague, a creator of dissension among the Jews and throughout the whole world. The second charge was a political charge. He called Paul a ringleader of this new religion or sect. In Rome, all religions had to be approved by the government, and unless it was approved, it was considered a treasonous act to practice that religion. At this time, the Christian church was considered an offshoot of Judaism, which was an approved religion in Rome. We know from history that this status will soon change and the Christian church will suffer severe persecution for centuries. Tertullus referred to the Christian community as Nazarenes, in keeping with the fact that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. They were also known as the Way. This title most probably came from Jesus' declaration that he is the Way, the Truth, and the Life. The third charge was a religious charge. Tertullus accused Paul of profaning the temple in Jerusalem. They assumed that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, which, if it were true, would have been a great violation not of not only their customs, but also the law of God. However, this charge was completely false. And besides this, Remember that Paul himself was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. In the book of Philippians, he describes himself this way, this chapter three, and circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul knew the law, and he loved the law, and he loved God, his, 
his Father, his Heavenly Father, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we will learn, what he was being charged with would have been the furthest thing from his mind while visiting the temple. Well, Tertullus then took his argument one step further. By accusing the commander in Jerusalem, Claudius Lysias, with interfering with their efforts to bring Paul to justice by violently grabbing Paul out of their hands, when in reality, the exact opposite took place. As we have read, Claudius Lysias had to rescue Paul from the Jews three times from their continued attempts to kill him with great violence. Amazingly, at the conclusion of his speech or prosecutorial charge, the, the Jews in that room all gave their assent and approval to all that Tertullus had said. This is astounding, as these men were the religious rulers in the nation of Israel. They were also eyewitnesses to all that had taken place that day, and they knew better than anyone that each of these charges were not true. Well, it is now time to hear Paul's defense. Let us turn to our Bibles and read it now. Acts chapter 24, beginning with verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd either in the temples, in the synagogues, or in the city. Nor could they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. Neither were the mob, nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. As he began his defense, Paul also acknowledges Felix's position as judge over the nation, but he refrained from excessive flattery, choosing rather to go directly to the charges that were brought against him. He begins by pointing out that 
It had only been 12 days since the events that had brought him to this place had taken place. Now, if you remember from our previous studies, when Paul was taken into custody by Claudius Lysias, there was a group of about 40 men who had taken a vow to not eat anything until they had killed Paul. Hmm, I wonder if they were still fasting or if, like so many people who take frivolous vows, they broke their vow and went back to enjoying a good dinner. I think that we can safely assume that the vow that had been taken had been broken soon after Paul had been quickly taken away by Lysias to Felix. Paul continued by explaining his purpose for being in Jerusalem on that day, answering the first charge. He explained that he had come to worship God. He further explained that he had been absent from Jerusalem for many years and he was there to bring alms and offerings. He further emphasized that there were none there who could prove that he was doing anything that was disruptive, nor would they be able to find a witness that could prove that he was inciting a riot. He was there in the temple that day to worship the Lord his God and to bring his offerings and alms, and that was all. In answer to the second charge, Paul admitted that he was a follower of the way. But then he explained that as a follower, he worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that furthermore, he believed in all that is written in the law and the prophets, just like these men who stood before him. Then he continued with this great statement in verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now we need to understand the dynamics of that, this statement brought to the tension into the room. Paul boldly declared that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Remember, Ananias, the high priest, was a Sadducee. And as such, he did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. You may ask how that could be, since throughout the Old Testament, this doctrine is taught. And the Jews believed that at the end of the age, the dead would rise again, just like it says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. As one commentator explains, Avoiding the controversial Messiah discussions, Paul went straight to the issue of resurrection and judgment. He stated, first of all, his hope of a resurrection of both the righteous and the ungodly. Because of this resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, Paul sought to maintain a clear conscience before God and everyone else. Here is the strong personal testimony of one who expected to stand before his maker and give an account for his life. In stating it this way, Paul not only bore witness to the fact that he was ready to meet God, but also by implication 
that all people must get ready for such a meeting in their own, of their own. In so doing, Paul aligned himself perfectly with the convincing work of the Holy Spirit, of whom Jesus said, when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Paul then proceeded to address the final charge against him. He shared about his visit to the temple, giving offerings and alms, quietly worshiping God. He was not surrounded by a crowd, nor did he even have time to stir anyone up for violent purposes. Having arrived in Jerusalem only a few days earlier, let's face it, Paul had been absent from Jerusalem for perhaps 20 years, and therefore, he would not have known very many people personally. In fact, the high priest that stood before him was not the same man who had been high priest before his conversion. Logic alone dictates that it was highly improbable that Paul could have accomplished what he was being accused of in so short of a period of time. And then Paul makes his final point. By Roman law, a citizen of Rome must be presented with their accuser. The third charge was based on a report from certain Jews from Asia. They had assumed he had brought a Gentile into the temple court because they had seen Paul walking through the streets of Jerusalem with someone they had recognized. However, these men were not present. And therefore, as a citizen of Rome, Paul had the right to face his accuser. Dr. John Stott makes the following observation. Why were these men not in court to press their charges? Their absence was a serious breach of Roman law, which was very strong against accusers who abandoned their charges. Since those agent Jews were not there as witnesses, then those who were there should state what crime the Sanhedrin had convicted him of. The fact is that the Pharisees had declared him innocent of any crime. Only the Sadducees thought him guilty, and that only of a theological belief concerning the resurrection of the dead. Well, with that, Paul closes with this final statement. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. What follows is very interesting, and in hindsight, we can affirm that God was working in the midst of all that took place. Let us now read how Felix responded to what he had heard in this trial. Acts 24, beginning with verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or visit him. And after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, 
Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor and left Paul bound. Felix wisely felt that he needed to hear directly from Lysias since his name was brought as part of the account against Paul. So he ordered Paul to be put under arrest, but his conditions were much more relaxed than it could have been. Felix ordered the centurion to place Paul in accommodations where his friends were free to come and go, visiting him and providing for him. The relative freedom that Paul enjoyed was probably due to the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen, and therefore there were certain limitations and freedoms that he was entitled to unless he were to be convicted of a crime. After some days, we read that Felix had brought Paul back to him. And we know that Felix was very familiar with Christianity, being a ruler in that area where the Christian church began. Added to that is the fact that his wife, Drusilla, was a Jew, and therefore she was raised to know the scriptures and all about the issues that would have been presented. The Life Application Bible Commentary makes the following observation. Governor Felix was quite familiar with Christianity, its history and teachings. Knowing about something, however, is not the same as embracing it. It is possible to know what the Bible teaches and yet never do what it commands. It is possible to know about Christ without ever committing oneself to him. How sad to be so close to the truth, yet never let it transform your heart and life. Be careful about complacency and laziness in your spiritual journey. You are responsible for every bit of revelation God gives. Luke had earlier recorded the sobering warning of Jesus, much is required from those to whom much is given. Now it says in verse 25 that Felix had Paul brought to him and his wife Drusilla. And Dr. Warren Wearsby gives us a little bit of insight into what that dynamic was all about. He writes, it must have been the curiosity of his wife Drusilla who prompted Felix to give Paul another hearing. She wanted to hear Paul. For after all, her family had been involved in the way, the Christian church, on several occasions. Her great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem, recorded in Matthew 2. Her great-uncle killed John the Baptist and mocked Jesus, that's recorded in Luke 23. And Acts 12, 1 through 2 tells us of her father killing the apostle James. So when Paul was brought before them, He could have softened his message in order to gain their favor, but instead, the Bible says that Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment. 
And then the Bible says that Felix was afraid and he sent Paul away from him. Why was he afraid? Because he knew that he, they, were guilty on all counts and therefore they stood condemned before the living God. It has been explained that Roman leaders prided themselves in their ability to be stoical and restrain their emotions under all circumstances, but a conviction from God gripped Felix's heart and he could not hide it. There was something that drew Felix to Paul and over the next two years, he had Paul brought to him often. Paul was being given a rich opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this man and his wife. But sadly, after two years, Felix was replaced by Portius Festus. And the Bible says that in Felix's desire to do the Jews a favor, he chose to leave Paul in prison. But what is worse is that he chose to reject the Savior of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout all that time, even though it is clear that Felix had hoped for some financial bribe for Paul's release, Paul had been a faithful witness and he was bold in his testimony and teaching. But Felix procrastinated and then he walked away from God's gift of grace. As someone once observed, Felix avoided making a decision about Christ with the age-old excuse, it's not convenient. Literally, the Greek says, when I find the time. Almost 2,000 years later, people are still sidestepping the gospel, using the same line, I'm too busy, I'm too involved in other things right now. Later on, when I find the time, I, I will think about these spiritual matters. I, I just can't right now. The truth is that knowing Christ and walking with him are the most important, most necessary issues in life. You will always be busy. There will never be a time when it is convenient. Those who are too busy to think about eternity now will have all of eternity to ponder their foolish indecision. When I read about Felix's choice, I'm reminded of the incident that Jesus encountered with a rich young ruler now, he was a man of wealth, privilege, and power, and he came to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His request was sincere. But Jesus' answer was not what he expected. Listen to the verbal exchange between Jesus and this man. Now, behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, 
All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man had desired eternal life, but he wanted it on his terms. He didn't want to give up his riches today in order to receive the riches of heaven. I would say that, like Felix, he was almost saved. Another man comes to mind who was also almost saved, and that man was Judas. Just imagine. For three and a half years, he was with Jesus night and day. He saw the miracles, he heard the teaching, and he participated in the ministry, but in the end, he was not willing to give up what he enjoyed today for the riches of heaven. The missionary Jim Elliot famously observed, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me repeat that. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I knew a young man who once said to me, I want to live my life and enjoy all of the experience that this world has to give, and then I will make it right with God before I die. That is foolishness to the extreme. We do not know if we will survive to see another day. No one knows the day nor the hour of their death. Therefore, to put off this eternal decision is foolish and unwise. Remember, the moment that you draw your last breath, your eternity is set. And on that great day of resurrection, at the end of the age, you will rise either to live eternally in the presence of God, or you will rise to be cast into the lake of fire, better known as hell, which is outside of the presence of God. This is a place that Jesus himself describes in Matthew 8:12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What you choose to do with Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Do you believe? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Or are you only almost saved? The Apostle Paul makes this plea, and I join him, in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though 
God, we're pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I urge you, my friend, don't be satisfied with being just almost saved like Felix, who, by the way, died a sinner, and he will suffer the eternal consequences for that decision. Be saved, my friend. Be saved today. Call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to forgive you of your sin and become your Savior and Lord. Humble yourself before him. He loves you. He died for you, and he rose from the dead. And one day he will return. And on that day, will you be standing before him as your savior or as your judge? The choice is yours. Heavenly Father, you have set before us the way of salvation. And it's through our Jesus Christ, your son, who, who came and lived among us and died on the cross, was buried, and he rose from the grave. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you will move in the hearts of those who are listening, that you would draw us to the foot of the cross, each one of us, for we all need its power and its mercy. For those who have not yet received Jesus, O oh Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit speak to their hearts. Continue to minister to them, to draw them so that they cry out to you, Oh Jesus, please save me. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, we still need the cross. And we still need your forgiveness for sin and cleansing from all unrighteousness. So we pray, Lord, forgive us. Cleanse us. Refresh us and renew us from within that we might be faithful before you, declaring your truth and your glory. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you are finding these messages helpful and encouraging, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, just please feel free to email me at BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. That's all one word, lowercase, BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. So until next time, my friend, let me encourage you with these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and 
good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. God bless you, my friend.